You don't have to be a rocket scientist to help realize a mission to Mars. Become an agent of innovation with Invesco QQQ. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Invesco Distributors, Inc. This podcast is brought to you by Invesco QQQ. Today's innovations are tomorrow's possibilities. Become an agent of innovation with Invesco QQQ. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Welcome to Trillions. I'm Joel Weber. And I'm Eric Balchunas. Eric, I live a desk life, but every once in a while you get to go on the road, not only from Philly to New York, which is like a weekly occurrence for you, but also to trade shows. Yeah, occasionally. I think I go to like three a year maybe, but this was the first of its kind, right? Normally I go to Inside ETFs, maybe one other one, of course, our events. And then this one was new for me, and um, it was done by the Ritholtz uh, wealth management, which as in is, Barry Ritholtz, yeah, who, Barry Ritholtz, who's come on the show, Josh Brown. You, a lot of people Bloom, on Bloomberg Opinion regular, yeah, a lot of people know them from Twitter. They all have a ton of followers. They are advisors, but they're not your grandfather's advisor. They're kind of very cool about it. They're fee based. They use uh, low cost uh, index funds. Some active. Uh, they're on Twitter a lot, and I think they're leading what's a sort of movement away from the traditional, both style and strategy of a wealth manager or a broker. And so this conference really was, to me, the future of the wealth management industry in a nutshell. A lot of independent, young advisors who were there really to learn how to get better. A lot of it was on technology, how advisors use technology. And ETFs, frankly, are a technology. So a lot of them were ETF users. I talked to a bunch of people there. Um, It was sold out, 700 people. 700 people, first time. Yep. They're already planning a second one in California next year. Where was this one? This was in uh, Scottsdale, Arizona. Okay. And some of the sessions included like uh, tech as a catalyst for growth, direct indexing, liquid alts, ESG, bringing your brand on social media. Uh, I was in a panel discussion called Battle of the Pundits, similar to that one I do in uh, How'd Florida. you fare? Well, they didn't judge this one, but I felt I did yeah, how'd okay. how'd you do though? You know, th- it was early in the morning. It was eight in the morning. So uh, Todd Rosenbluth, as you know, he, I think he was the straw stirring the drink this time. He took a few uh, friendly shots at, at Matt, Dave, myself, and he got us going. But mostly, I think we were pretty, uh, pretty calm up there. You know, nobody was really uh, doing anything too crazy. We were just trying to give our take on the market and ETFs. This time on Trillions, Eric's dispatch from Wealthstack. Okay, Eric, so you went to Wealthstack with a recorder. Who was the first big fish that you got? Josh Brown. Um, That's who, a good get. Yeah. You know, I've met him a, uh, a bunch over the years. He's really great, really uh, personable. and uh, He's on Twitter. Tw- he's, yeah. He's amazing on Twitter. And he's... It's, Hand, his, his handle is... Uh, at Reform Broker. Yep. Um, and you can see his fingerprints all over this conference. So I thought, let's start with him because he's really the mastermind, uh, him and his company behind this, including Inside ETFs. So I got to give them a lot of credit. They are master conference organizers. So here's just talking about the goalie event and why Arizona. We have, I think... Some of the leading technology companies that serve advisors. Hold on, just turn the gain down a little. There you go. Oh, am I too loud for this? Yeah, I saw a little red. I didn't want to blow it out, so there you go. All right. Yeah, yeah you can see it. Just come down an inch. All there right. You go. Yeah. We have most of the practitioners who are forward-thinking and progressive advisors, and then we have most of the financial technology providers that are serving this audience. So it's very engaged audience. It's young advisors, a lot of energy, 
And I think the networking is really what brings the whole thing together. So. And why Scottsdale in September? It's 100 degrees. Like, what's the logic there? We're not very bright, Eric. Um, so Scottsdale in September, you know what? It's a beautiful hotel. It's a great venue. We really don't want people milling around outdoors. There was a hike this morning led by Dan Egan from Betterment. Took a whole group of uh, advisors up into Camelback Mountain. Two dead. And, of course, we pray for their families. Did people really die? No. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> uh, I'm sure some came close to it, but it's, it was, again, 100-degree hike. Uh, I saw some photos from up there. It was kind of cool. A lot of people took early morning hikes up to the mountain. The idea of having but an event— But you were busy. Yeah, the idea of having an event somewhere where most people did not want to be outside, I think, was uh, sort of the rationale they were giving. And by the way, you know, that, um, that one was a little loud. There's a gain on the mic, and so excuse the little hiccups, and I, I kind of like— Get better as we go. You'll see the... This is why we typically have our <laughs> colleagues do the field reports. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> um, okay, so next one is just... I thought it was cool because it was very casual. I did not bring slacks. I wore jeans the whole time, and that was completely the Rebel. right move. Rebel. Nobody there had a tie on, and may, many people were even more dressed down. I mean, I thought... So, some, some people were in t-shirts. I dig it. I personally think this is where things are going. I enjoyed it. Here's Josh on, on the casual attire. I think there's the sense that a previous generation of advisors, they were extraordinarily image conscious and they were always worried about saying the wrong thing and coming off too casually. And that seems to have gone away. And I think this generation of advisors, it's more about the substance and the ideas and less about who's wearing a suit. You know, who, like we, you know, none of us are trying to look and act like our fathers. We're trying to be our own people. And I think we want our clients to understand that we're real and we're authentic, um, and we're not putting on an, uh, a show for them. We're, we're being ourselves, and I think that resonates. I think it works really well in this era. So having a conference that was slightly more laid back and fun and youthful and energetic, it just made perfect sense to me. How many flip-flops? Well, on Sunday, I saw a lot. That was the sort of half conference, half like hanging up by the pool day. But Monday, not, not really. Um, some, some people in sneakers, but mostly people had shoes How on. How do you feel about it if somebody's in flip-flops managing your money? Is that one step too far? On a Monday at the conference, probably. I think that's a little, a little bit too far. But the common dress was like maybe a shirt, a jacket, jeans. Uh, some people just had a shirt on, like a um, dress shirt on. Um, there was, you know, a couple people who were a little more dressed up than that. But like I said, it was very casual, more casual than inside ETFs, which is pretty casual as it is. How do you feel about it when people at Bloomberg wear shorts to work? Like the R&D guys? Yeah, just in general. I get jealous because they're so in demand, they can just come to work in shorts and it's fine. I saw one guy once and I was just like, no, Coders. no, no, I don't, I don't think that's appropriate. <laughs> it might be a summer Friday, but like, dude, you're at work. No, I, there should be some level of decorum. And there was. Um, people look kind of cool, I got to say. So uh, again, this is all part of a package that an advisor, advisors interact with the, the clients. And so I think it says a lot about what- Where the industry's going. Totally. Yeah. Who else did you see? So uh, Nate Geraci, who is the host of another ETF podcast called ETF Prime. Rival. Uh, also a friend because I was on the, the one last week. <laughs> so, um, And Nate's had me on a bunch of times. His podcast is really good. They do it out of Kansas City. And it's real, um, real easy to understand. They really break it down. I, I love it. It's called ETF Prime. Anyway, he was there and he talked about tech. Tech was a big thing here because if you are a client out there with a wealth manager – your expectations for how to inter interface with them are changing, and he addresses that. 
If you think about how clients or how everyday people interact with technology, so Amazon, Uber, Netflix, that's their expectation when it comes to financial advice as well. Those companies, for better or worse, and I would say for better, have set client expectations around what technology and what, what that should look like for them. So I think as an advisor, we have to be thinking about that. You know, this one resonates with me a little bit because if, if you dabble with any sort of robo platform, it's it's pretty amazing how good it is. And then you go to like a bank and, you know, check your bank balance and it's like, man, I can barely even transfer money around here. It's amazing how how good it's gotten um, in a very short period of time. And he, and he's right. You think about like a, a UI like a Netflix and it's got to be like what is driving financial services now. Yeah, there was a couple um, presenters who talked a lot about this. So I think that was a big part of it. There was a guy, Eric Clark from Orion, who provides a lot of this back office technology. What he said was interesting, and I tweeted this out, it got a lot of activity. Some people agreed, some people didn't, which is that the advisor value proposition used to be investments. You know, I can get you the mutual funds, I can get you this, now or the stocks. Now it's planning, right, because investments are cheap. And he thinks it's going to migrate to the client experience in the future as even planning gets priced down by the robos. So client experience was a big one, again. And this is where I think... Ritholtz has a lot going for it because you know them. They're writing a lot. They're they're adding value in all these different ways because, again, every time something uh, is value, it tends to get priced down and commoditized. So you're trying to stay ahead of that process. Okay, so we've, we've talked to one of the guys who helps organize it. We've talked to you know a peer of yours with a rival podcast. Who else we got? Uh, N- Nicole Boyson, who is a finance professor of Northeastern University. Do you know her before? Yeah, I met her um, on Twitter, but then in person. I met her at the Democratized Quant Conference, uh, which uh, is uh, down at Villanova every year. Anyway, she's really smart. Um, she was down there because, she, of course, she teaches, but she also does a lot of work with writing papers about brokers and advisors. And some are both, like you know, a Goldman could be both a broker and an advisor. But the payment systems of these, how you get paid is different. And that incentive has really completely changed the whole apparatus as what they move from broker to a fee-based advisor. And this is that move is why passive is so big. So I asked her to just explain that move. And most people at this conference probably, I mean, I wouldn't give a percentage, but a high percentage are fee-based advisors, not brokers. I love that an academic is actually studying that. Yeah. So, I mean, in the old days, you know, you're a broker and you get paid by the mutual fund. And then that started to shift and more and more advisors became fee-based advisors. And then within that space, more and more of the fee-based advisors said, you know what, I'm going to go out on my own. I don't want to be affiliated with a broker. I'm going to start my own shop, really focus on holistic financial planning, getting away from the transaction-based way of being paid. And I think that this group, it's a young group, it's a vibrant group. People are really excited about serving their clients. And there's a huge push, I think, in two ways. I mean, one is technology, trying to really leverage technology so that you can focus on time with meeting with clients as opposed to, you know, running an Excel spreadsheet and trying to figure out what their assets look like. And then I think the other piece is really, really serving clients in ways that probably were more lip service before. So really integrating estate planning, really integrating kind of college planning and big picture planning and looking at a client's, um, you know, where they're going as opposed to just, here's your canned allocation, see you in a year. She really, I think, nailed the whole concept here. It's just aggressively, relentlessly increasing your value proposition so you can stay a step ahead of all the uh, stuff that's getting priced down. 
I mean, that, I, that's why I think it's interesting that like Barry and Co are actually the ones doing this, right? Like, they're, I mean, they epitomize this. Absolutely. I mean, I have this idea for a book called The Big Long, which is sort of tracking some of these fee-based advisors who started this early on and who have been pretty optimistic about the market. I think The Big Short inspired a bunch of people to be very nerdy and call bubbles. Like it like just the way Gordon Gecko inspired a bunch of people who wanted to like rule the world. I think the big short inspired bubble callers and these guys have remained optimistic. They've fought back and it's worked. Uh just staying long, staying optimistic, keeping people on a plan, investing not to gamble, but to benefit from the value created by people who go to work every day at these big companies. So this again not just is big a, companies, all companies. Small companies, you're right. So uh this is definitely again a whole mindset that's different in many different categories here. So I think that's why we're covering it. I think that's why I went. And I think uh, that incentive, again, how you get paid is such a big reason behind the rise of passive. Because once your your fee is a percentage of your client's assets and you know it's up, you kind of like, well, I'm not going to pay a lot. I, I just want a, a lot of broad exposure. And I'll pick and choose my battles of where I go active. But otherwise, just give me cheap beta. All right. Who's next? Um, next is uh, Tyrone Ross. Um, Tyrone Ross is a um, startup advisor, a crypto advisor. He advises millennials. How much crypto is there, by the way? A little. Handful. Not a ton. Surprised? No. I mean, you know, crypto really goes with the youth. And so because it was younger, there was definitely a crypto uh, element there. But again, most of these advisors are, are managing regular people's money, and crypto isn't a huge part of any portfolio yet. Anyway, he also says he's a voice for the voiceless on his Twitter. And I met him. He's a great guy. We talked to him about doing good because I think the idea of these advisors really, I think, have this – they really want to help. And I think not just helping people retire with uh, assets and being able to like do the things they want, but also giving back. And Tyrone recently joined with Exponential ETFs to do investing classes and teaching in Detroit in inner cities to try to get more people into it because, as you know, the income inequality gap – a big part of it is because half the country isn't in stocks, and that's driven a lot of the wedge between the really rich people okay. and those who don't have it. So he talks about that. I want to hear what he has to say. When you break it down into those who are unbanked, underbanked, and, and get into the class structure of it, you have you get into the 30%, 40% of people who have no access to the market at all. So those that own assets over the last 10 years, like you said, 300%. So now creating awareness around what an ETF is. Right, awareness around well, when you go into your SoFi account or you have an Acorns account and you you're actually putting money to work. This is what you're investing in. Right. Those small steps, basic education. I think now you start to get people exposed. Right. You start to educate people and you start to put them in a position where now they say, okay, this is a whole world I knew nothing about. What are the next steps? I love that. He's like an activist. Yeah, and you know. It's really true. I'm, ETFs can be bought for, you know, there's no minimum investment. Well, I was just thinking if you just about get, it. Just get your hooks like, in the market. Good things happen. Literally, we've had multiple people on already talk about technology and how transformative, how ETFs are a technology play. And you think about how easy it is to, like, do something on your phone. All you need is the awareness. So if somebody like that's going to a city like Detroit and trying to make a difference, it's really interesting. Another thing about Tyrone is I find him to be <laughs> bleeding edge when it comes to fearlessness on social media. He'll he's an ex track guy and he will do uh, he'll tape himself on his iPhone after working out just giving his thoughts on random things. Uh, it takes a brave soul to do that. He talks about the authenticity that's needed and is helpful on social media. 
And social media was a big part of this because a lot of younger clients are going to look for you on social media, not in traditional forms. You're a little bit like that, especially with the Eagles. Yeah, I mean, I tweet my thoughts sometimes, especially about sports, but I don't – I'm just not there whipping out my phone in like, you know, at my house and just saying like a reaction on something. But I've seen like sports analysts do it, like Stephen A. Smith will do it sometimes and just seems like that's where things are going. And people like that because it's like unpolished. Fast take. Yeah. It's a difficult thing to do. Right? You, you, you open yourself to a lot of ridicule on social media, period, when you post anything, let yeah. alone being vulnerable. But I think what I want people to do is – understand that talking about the your weaknesses right things that you've gone through your experiences everyone has a story and I just want people to tell their story because I think if we do that then we're not so divided right and 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 we can understand what it means to be a black man versus a white woman versus to be someone who comes from affluence versus someone who doesn't there's a struggle in everybody's story no one is exempt right we all live life and life will test you in a certain trials I've seen him tweet out stuff that gets you know, exponential more likes than corporate handles that tweet out stuff that you can tell has been approved by 13 lawyers. And he has a 50th of the followers as that other handle. So he's what he's doing works. And it again, it's showing your weakness, being honest. It's hard. We got to hang with this guy. <laughs> we should have him on uh, for sure do um, down the road. This podcast is brought to you by Invesco QQQ. What do all the greatest innovations have in common? Agents. People who participate in progress by supporting cutting-edge ideas. Invesco QQQ is a fund that allows you access to innovators of the NASDAQ 100 all-in-one fund. So you don't have to be an inventor to help create what's next to come. Anyone can become an agent of innovation with Invesco QQQ. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. There are risks when investing in ETFs, including possible loss of money. ETF risks are similar to those of stocks. Investments in the tech sector are subject to greater risk and more volatility than more diversified investments. The NASDAQ 100 Index comprises the 100 largest non-financial companies on the NASDAQ. You can't invest directly into an index. Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit Invesco.com for a prospectus containing this information. Read it carefully before investing. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Who's next? Next is Patrick O'Shaughnessy. He is a asset manager, quant, and he's also got a podcast, Invest Like the Best, which is really great. I highly recommend it. I was on it once. When I went on it, I got like 300 new followers. Like this guy is has a lot of influence out there. He basically unveiled something called Canvas, which is what we talk about direct indexing. It's a tool where you just sort of flip a few knobs, put your interest in, and the advisor is able to give a customized portfolio. Skip the ETF. And just get what you want. You know, you want the S&P minus one or two stocks? We can do that. You want this and this? Oh, wow. And then the only the cost will be based on how much active share you have. So they don't charge you for beta, only active share beyond that. So it was cutting edge, very easy to follow. And I think um, this could resonate. Huh. You know, I've been skeptical on direct indexing, but this presentation, I think, uh, made me uh, move the needle for me a little bit. So here he is talking about it. Canvas is an investing platform, software, that allows advisors to design deeply customized strategies for all of their clients. This is a big trend, this idea of customization. I think technology has only just caught up to the point that we can actually do this and implement it. So no matter the client's circumstances and preferences, 
the low basis stock they own, um, the things they care about, the stocks they don't like, the ESG considerations they want in the portfolio. All of these things can now be tailored, sort of a fingerprint portfolio to each individual so they can get something from the advisor they can't get elsewhere that's better wrapped around their circumstances and preferences. That sounds great. Why have you been hard on this? Well, that brings us to our next interview. I went back to Nate Geraci, who is an advisor in Missouri. I mean, he's got clients. I asked them, here's why. A three basis point ETF that gives you the whole market and like another one for fixed income, they take care of a bunch of stuff that you don't realize. I mean, you outsource a ton of stuff for four basis points. That is a seriously good value proposition. So this is trying to replace your whole portfolio. It's not like saying, hey, give us like a little tiny piece, like a, like a, like a fund would be like, hey, just put 2% in me. This is like, hey, use us instead of all your ETF. So again, you're going the for the platform play. Yeah, absolutely. Now, I will say, I, I, like I said, I, I'm, uh, this was a great presentation. I think I heard talk to some people who said for certain clients, this will be great, especially ones that want the newest stuff or might be very picky about what they like or ESG focused. But here's Nate talking about what, why he is skeptical to use it for his clients uh, at least right now. The value proposition of ETFs is so compelling right now that I do think direct indexing is going to have a difficult time significantly penetrating that market. I think the best use case for direct indexing is ESG. And one of the comments was made on the panel that you sat on today, the Battle of the ETF pundits, that direct indexing will swamp the demand for ESG ETFs. I agree with that. Um, outside of that particular use case, I just wonder, direct indexing to me, you're adding active management into the process. You're going to have tracking error, even if it's minor. And so as an advisor, do you want to bring that into the fold? Um, I think that's A. What are the costs going to be? I don't think we know exactly what the costs are going to look like. So you have transaction costs inside of the direct indexing. There's going to be an asset management fee, I'm assuming, layered on that. And so going back to how compelling a value proposition ETFs are right now, how how big of a tax advantage is direct indexing going to be to overcome the potential for tracking error, the additional cost? I think you are adding complexity into the process because it's something else that has to be explained to the end client. These are all questions that I think need to be answered, and, and they're questions that I have. Well, there's the bear case. Yeah, and I talked to um, the O'Shaughnessy folks uh, before coming on. They said they had 300 people sign up for demos on their website. So, uh, look, we'll see. I think we should do a whole episode on direct indexing at some point. I think maybe even having Patrick on and just diving in uh, would be a good idea. You can tell there's a lot of meat here. Totally. We're doing it. Okay, next. Uh, next up, we have... By the um, way, I just love you roving around with your recorder looking for people to talk to. <laughs> who'd, you, who'd you find? <laughs> Next, we have Ben Carlson, also at Ritholtz. You know this last Burry saying passive bubble, yada, yada. Every quarter, there's somebody who says passive bubble, and then somebody ends up writing a rebuttal of why it's maybe not true. Ben was the guy this time. So I, I just asked Ben about, you know, the, a lot of these advisors are using passive and index funds and ETFs. Um, do they ever get swayed by these, you know, pretty famous hedge fund types calling and saying passive is has problems or it could cause a problem? And I just asked him about that because he wrote the last defense piece, uh, which I highly recommend reading at at, um, at wealthofcommonsense.com. But here, here he is talking about why he defends passive. Right. And we get questions from clients on this stuff, too. Like, they see this. You can't ignore it, obviously. I mean, the way that I look at it, like, anytime there's going to be a crash, there's going to be a narrative attached to it. 
And so people want to get like ahead of that crash and attach an error to it now. But there's always been crashes before index fund ex existed. So, so we, we want to get ahead of those questions and put context around it and try to tell people like, listen, you're, you're basically talking about the entire stock market here. The stock market has always been crazy. Index funds aren't going to make that any crazier than it already was, right? Basically saying, look, I mean, you own index funds, you own a bunch of stocks. If you own an active mutual fund, you own almost the same stocks. Everybody's in these big caps. It's not like the index fund is some crazy derivative. That's his point, and um, I'm with him. I think it's exactly right. Next. Next, we have Keon. I'm going to butcher his last name. Salah Hizada, and he is an um, ETF issuer. There are a couple of ETF issuers here. Why wouldn't there be? It's a room full of advisors. It's like your dream. <laughs> yeah. Um, he was there, and I talked to him about just being a small issuer. They have a couple niche products. Um, they have a, maybe uh, I think it was 190 million in assets. Just asked him about like trying to sell to these advisors who are tended lean BlackRock and Vanguard. And he said he was getting some traction from the younger crowd. Uh, for us, it's all about differentiation. So with the limited people that we do have, I mean, we every one of our seven strategies that we have at this point, we just we're trying to bring something unique to the market or put some unique spin on it because we feel like that's really the only way that you're going to get adoption outside of you know a two or three basis point index fund. Um, and, it, and it seems to resonate with some of the younger and more up-and-coming advisors more so, I would say. Um, yeah, the older generation is not as into that sort of thing, but the younger guys, I think, have something to prove with their clients, and more of their clients are also younger and want something different. Wait, what's this guy selling? So Keon is Reality Shares. Reality Shares, uh, one of the ETFs you might know is that they have a blockchain ETF. They're one of those issuers. But they're, one of their bigger ones is Divi, which is the Reality Shares Divs ETF. And it, it tracks dividend swaps. It's a way to play actual dividend growth exceeding expected dividend growth. So it's a really complicated product. But um, I think that's sort of what he's saying is that you, you, know, you can't just put the S&P in an, you know, maybe a different order. I think uh, you know, that's getting priced down severely. He's trying to innovate, um, and he's uh, going out there and trying to find younger advisors. And it's interesting that, that he said that, I thought, because when I think of someone like that out there at a conference, first of all, you got to hustle. So I commend him for doing that. I am so surprised there were not more small issuers there because these are younger, smaller advisors who might take a chance on a smaller issuer. That said, um, this is how you have to try to go forward, but it's very difficult for India issuers. So you're out there hustling. Hustling. You, you, you with a microphone hustling around. Who did you see that you uh, hustled over to next? Next was the exact opposite, a big issuer. Um, I didn't see – there was one guy from Vanguard there who was on a panel. I didn't see any BlackRock. But there, um, Sue Thompson from State Street Spiders was there. And I basically talked to her about what we've talked about occasionally. We haven't done an episode on it. But the fact that some ETF issuers are now becoming advisors. And they're sort of compete with their clients. State Street has come out and said, we will not, never do this. And so I sort of asked Sue about whether that would or could give them an advantage uh, or and or make makes it a little easier for her to walk around a place like this, knowing that she's just talking to clients and not competitors also. When you think about State Street Bank, our parent, they're known for being a custodian to all of these asset managers. And so our partnering with asset managers, our, our partnership, is part of our DNA. Competing against our clients is not. And I, I think we're going to 
more and more get to the place where advisors are going to be valuing that. Um, I was just talking to an advisor the other day who had recently lost a very significant client to an ETF issuer that has a direct business and was not happy about it at all. And, you know, it's very difficult if you're an advisor and you're charging 100 basis points and you've got a large ETF issuer that's charging 35 basis points, you know, where's that going to, what is that going to do to your business long term? You have to think about that. Knives out. Knives out. And the 35 makes me think it's either Vanguard or Schwab. Those are the two big ones. And honestly, those are the ETFs that a lot of RIAs and advisors love. They're cheap beta, right? And But now everybody has cheap beta. Spider's got a line of cheap beta. Invesco has a line of cheap beta. Goldman and JP Morgan are also launching their lines of cheap beta. All these products, you can get basically everything for under 7 bips. So there are now options. And so State Street's sort of saying like, you know, I know you love Vanguard and Schwab, but we're actually not going to compete with you and make that difficult. I haven't seen it maybe hit the flows fully yet. I think Spider's um, cheap beta line has taken in cash. Not sure if it's for that reason per se, or just the fact that there's cheap offerings and they have a big sales force. But this is an interesting concept because throughout this whole conference, as we talked about, the idea was always working on your value proposition, getting your game better, because there are these big firms that can scale and they can drive that price down because well, it's Schwab and Vanguard charge... 30, and that's the that's when you come in cheap. Like if you have like, uh, I believe it's $10 million, right. Vanguard will do it for like five to 10 bips, I believe. Well, it speaks to like where the asset management industry can go there. I mean, there's only so many places that you can go. I mean, you might have the scale, but like where are you going to get some money? This brings us to a bigger issue, which is that everything's consolidating. You know, advisors get a little more fee, right? 1%, 75 bips. It sounds pretty good to an asset manager. They can't sell anything over 10 so I get the move over there. Um, I think we're probably headed for a world where a lot of big asset managers are also advisors. And it's like the airlines. There's a couple of giant ones that do almost everything for you. And then on the fringes, you'll have these sort of more uh, smaller specific RIAs that have more local connections or something. Same with asset managers that do more boutique work, alternative work, stuff you can't index. Um, so I think part of what these guys are doing is trying to trying to make sure that they're providing that value add and that human touch and that experience so they can't be victims of the Vanguard effect. Who was your next victim? <laughs> next victim and final victim was Annie Massa, our very own I know Bloomberg Annie. News. Yeah. yeah, she was on a couple of weeks ago talking multi-factor. She was there. She moderated a panel about like macro, uh, the macro scene, you know, what's the election going to hold, that kind of thing. That was more of a panel you see most places. I think that was a general one. But of course, all these advisors are concerned about the election and this and I asked her about that, but what really struck me on the interview was had nothing to do with work. <laughs> Annie used the opportunity to go to Arizona, take a few days off, and go on like a field trip around the Grand Canyon and hiking. And I don't know, it sounded great. I was jealous, and so I asked her about her, uh, you know, her trip, uh, her trip before the conference. So <laughs> I took a couple of days and did an Annie Goes West road trip around <laughs> Arizona. So I went up to Sedona. I saw the Red Rocks. I hiked around there. It's the 100th anniversary of the Grand Canyon National Park being a national park. So I went to celebrate the centennial. I uh, hiked a couple of trails into the canyon and, you know, just saw the sunrise, stayed until sunset, watched the stars come out. Like, I'm never going home, basically. (laughs) 
That had nothing to do with work. Absolutely nothing. Uh, now, on the flip side was my experience. Even though I had fun at the conference, I got there, and I was on East Coast time, so I woke up at like 4 in the morning. And then when I finally flew back, I couldn't go to sleep until 1 o'clock in the morning because I had adapted to West Coast. So I'm shot right now. But um, Annie, I think she did it right, took a few days off. She looked fresh and relaxed, and I was a little more like... Um, a little more tired and exhausted, but I, you know, the conference did give me a little bolt of adrenaline. I, I really ran on fumes for a while, and um, like I said, um, I got a lot out of it. And what do you got to say to uh, Barry Ritholtz? See you next year. Well, oh, I'll probably okay. see him before All that. Right. I, I run into Barry in the pantry sometimes, so um, I will just tell him that he did a great job. I think this is a good event, and I think it's not just the material, it's not just the advice world, it's it's the vibe. I feel like they're just tapping into the modern vibe of finance. It's not like it was, and these guys are really, I think, at the tip of that spear of this big, broader change from a more stereotypical Wall Street to a new, more relaxed, um, uh, collaborative world. With jeans. <laughs> By the way, what was the highlight of the of the whole conference? You mean like the parties and stuff? Yeah. So, um, uh, well, the first night they had a Sunday night football uh, party outside. Now, mind you, it's 110 degrees, so they had these fans blowing water. It was wild, like water fans. That's how hot it was. But um, everybody sat there and drank beers and watched the Patriots blow out the Steelers. Then I went out to dinner after that with a lot of the ETF nerds who I was on a panel with the next day. Probably had a, a little too much to drink. Although I was probably I was in bed at a decent hour. But again, I got jolted awake at 4, 5 a.m., something like that. And then Tuesday night, everybody went out because they got this DJ Scribble who uh, I'm not up on my DJs, but Josh Brown claims he's amazing. And there was a big party. I did not go to that. I was shot and I had to get up early the next day to go home. You know, there was a moment in time that you were up to speed on DJs. You oh changed. My, yeah. I mean, the 90s, forget about it. I'd have been right there. I would have closed that place out. <laughs> I would still be up. <laughs> no, don't put the last one. No, that's, you, you're too keeping much. that. Too much. Okay. Too much. I gotta, I gotta go. Thanks for listening to Trillions. Until next time, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal, Bloomberg.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you like to listen. We'd love to hear from you. We're on Twitter. I'm at Joel Weber Show. He's at Eric Balchunas. Trillions is produced by Magnus Hendrickson. Francesca Levy is the head of Bloomberg Podcast. Bye. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to help realize a mission to Mars. Become an agent of innovation with Invesco QQQ. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It offers flexible spending capacity that adapts to your business. You can also earn up to $395 in annual statement credits on eligible purchases at select business merchants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard.